Welcome to Shotgun Story, the podcast that has conversations with indie creators about music, meaning, and the point of it all, so that you may be inspired by the journeys of other artists who are doing it for themselves, and maybe gain a little more understanding as to why it matters quite so much that you keep creating. Daniel Friedman is a Joburg-based writer and performer. From 2010 to 2020, he performed as a musical comedian under the alias Deep Fried Man, receiving a Comics Choice Award, a Stanabank Ovation Award, and two international Emmy nominations as a writer and cast member of the television show Late Night News with Lois Ogola. Before this, he self-released two albums as a singer-songwriter. He's also worked as a journalist, a columnist, and a scriptwriter. I can't remember exactly where Daniel and I met. What I can say for certain, he means an awful lot to me. And I'm so grateful to have him on the show. Hi, Daniel. Hi, Tori. Thanks. <laughs> I also can't remember when we met. But I remember that probably the first time that we spent significant time together was on that crazy White Mountain folk festival, which doesn't happen anymore, but it was in KZN. I mean, I don't know about this year, but it did happen last year. Oh, wow. It's the same guy as a splashy fan, and uh -huh. this was many years ago. And I was at the time, I wasn't a comedian yet. I was making music with James. Yes. And I can't remember what, it was basically like him on a 808, I think. can't remember and exactly. playing bass. But I do know that we swore a fair amount on that stage that day, and that was not appreciated. Oh, and it didn't go down well. No. That's like the story of my life basically has always been annoying or upsetting whoever <laughs> gives me opportunities in life. In my first band, we had a band called High Society, and I don't know what even got into me, but we, we played at a thing called the U stage in Grahamstown during the festival. You set up this big stage for people to go. It was supposed to be like some huge deal that they'd asked us, this little band, to play on the U stage. Yeah. So we played at like 10 in the morning or something <laughs> stupid. There were like four people there. And then afterwards, at the end, I was like, thank you so much for the opportunity. Uh, I don't read You magazine. And then I said something really bad about You oh, magazine. Yeah. And then I got really upset. Oh, dear. And I think that Richard Rumney was the guy who made, produced all of that stuff. He was part of the band at that point. And he says that that's what he remembers me the most for, is burning bridges and upsetting people. <laughs> <laughs> and in a way, that's still what it, it's, it's, it's never really left. I've learned a lot about burning bridges. I've learned that there are some bridges that even get rebuilt. It's like you think you've burnt a bridge and it's gone forever, but that's not always the case. I've like ended up having opportunities with people who I've really burnt my bridges with before. So it just depends. Well, I suspect it's also because you are incredibly talented, at what you do, and so sometimes really talented people, even though they burn their bridges. I've never really respected those guys who are like prima donnas, who like because they're talented, they just are full of shit. Yeah. So you've got to kind of keep that in check and you've got to do it in moderation. Someone told me in comedy, they said, you can either be really talented and then you can get away with doing whatever you want, or you can be a little bit talented and then you have to be really polite. And that the first way is probably better. Like the first <laughs> way is Trevor Noah. Like he used to just piss off everyone and they still used to book him. But now I suppose that's in comedy and you're not even doing comedy anymore. No, I've stopped comedy. But you are still a musician. I am. Over lockdown, I wrote a lot of songs. So now the question is, what do I do with them? With me, it's always like that. The truth is, I can't stand the admin side of being a musician. I can't stand organizing gigs. Yeah. I can't stand a lot of the time. The gigs itself, 
not the playing, but yeah. like all the stuff around the gig, you know, when you get there and you're waiting and afterwards when some guy comes up to you and he's got completely random feedback that you don't need mm -hmm. about the third song that you did. And he's like, and you can use that. You can use that for free. And he always makes it sound like he's giving you amazing advice. There's a lot that I don't like about it. And even it's like, it's almost like a burden on me that I've written these songs. And right. now I'm at a turning point where I have to decide, do I just let them be? Because I saw a lot of stuff like that on social media. It's becoming quite a popular idea that you should be able to create without an audience. Mm. Because a lot of people create for an audience, myself included. But this idea that like, it doesn't matter if you're the best at something. The important part is the actual creation. So whether it's drawing or writing or whatever. And yeah, I'm at a turning point where I need to decide whether those songs ever see the light of day and in what form. Interesting that you say that about keeping the creation to yourself. I have a friend who um, has a foundry in the Midlands and she was talking about the idea of a labyrinth. Mm. It works like a hero's journey mm. and you go in and you learn all these things mm. along the way, but the goal is to take them out and live them in the real world and to share them. I feel like it's really important yeah. to share things. Creations. Yeah, yeah, that's the counter argument. The one argument is it doesn't really matter who sees it. The important thing is that the creation of it was something that allowed you to grow or something that you enjoyed. The flip side of that is like, if you write a song and no one ever hears it, what's the point? It's so strange because in a lot of stuff, in, with comedy, it was very much like there was an ambition to it. Like I wanted to make a career out of it. I wanted to do well. And ultimately that was basically my downfall in the comedy industry, which is that I stopped enjoying it. Yeah. Um, because it became a job. And because I found like being funny is a very strange thing because it doesn't always come naturally. Mm. And the problem with being funny for a living is that then when it doesn't come naturally, then you have to force it. Yeah. And that's why a lot of comedians, myself included, like if you ever watch a lot of the stuff we do over a long period of time, you'll see times where we completely dry and you can tell that we're forcing it. Yeah. And that's a very horrible thing. That's one of my worst things and things that I'll miss the least is mm. that idea of like, you know, you've always got to be on. People take a photo of you and you're supposed to pull a funny face. You yeah. know? And you know what? I loved that at first and because I'd been doing serious folky stuff and I think a lot of it's just contrarianness for me is that when I was a serious folky, I liked to mess around and make people laugh. When I became a comedian and the expectation was that I would mess around and make people laugh all the time, then I suddenly kind of wanted to rebel against that. I was like, what if I don't feel like making yeah. anyone laugh today? You know, What if I just feel serious today? So it is, it's a hard thing to... I mean, probably the best comedians in the world are the ones who just, it comes naturally to them all the time. Yeah. They never, you know, because you can sense when someone's forcing it. But I'd say, you know, 80% of all comedians have times where they have to force it. And I suppose, same with musicians, same with any singer-songwriters, you'd have a time where you're on stage and you're not really feeling like playing your songs. And yeah. You have to bring that excitement to it that you would normally feel naturally. You have to kind of fake it. Mm. It's part of performance is being able to fake things. And to, to lesser or more degrees, you know, and there's some amazing performers out there who never fake things. That's kind of part of their act as they're always themselves. But that's it's hard to achieve. Incredibly hard, actually. But personally, I love that, that authenticity of mm. this is where I am and this is what you're getting of me. Yeah. And that's my favorite thing about the folk genre, I guess, as opposed to yeah. other genres of music. Yeah. I mean, there's not supposed to be much of a show to it. It's yeah. just, you know, you, yeah. And the, the important thing is the lyrics and the important thing is the music. There will always be someone who tells you how to better do your show to entertain. Oh, yeah. 
but it's a it's a liberating genre in terms of that because if you're in a rock band then you know you have to try you know you, you at least have the option in folk of just you know not really connecting with the audience if you don't want to absolutely know. i mean it wasn't a lead singer of the doors who used to turn around and yeah. sing with his back to the audience yeah at first he was very shy and he was trying to overcome that apparently yeah Amazing. That gave me hope when I was in left-hand drive, actually. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you follow a lot of these stories, like, I mean, that one especially, it's like he'd, he'd never sung before. The only reason why uh, Ray Manzarek, who was a very, he was a keyboardist and he was a very accomplished musician and he chose Jim Morrison purely because of his aura. Yeah. You know, I mean, like those were those days where, you know, if you wanted to be a rock star, you needed that kind of aura. And yeah. he obviously had it. And the interesting thing to me is then how did they know he wouldn't just sound like a complete, I mean, maybe for every Jim Morrison, there's another guy who just couldn't sing at all, but who had the aura and eventually they had to tell him, no, this isn't happening. But I mean, Jim Morrison, it's not like he's got the greatest voice of all time, but he can sing. Mm, definitely. Yeah. Kind of feel like the doors is a weird one. It's like, I still love them, but I'll never love them. Like I did when I was like an angsty teenager. And it's almost like over a certain age, it comes a bit more embarrassing to say, you know, like I'm a huge doors fan. <laughs> Like at a certain time of your of your life, it's expected. They're kind of a bit of a teenagery band. I only discovered them, I feel, in my early twenties, so I missed my teenage years with them. They're a good band. I like it when they play the blues, and I like it when they play like normal, straight up songs, as opposed to the other thing they do, which is those really long, you know, like the end, and it's like ding ding ding, and they're like playing in the background, and then. Jim Morrison saying some really deep stuff. <laughs> and then the snake, the snake rides and he rides until dawn. And, the and it's just like, like, it seems cobbled together. <laughs> I, mean, I feel like I want to go and listen to that desperately now. It's, some people love it. Some people it's the best. I think, do you know what? Do you know there's another band who does the exact same thing? They either do straight up songs or they do those that really is, is violent films. They, they have those songs like um, Added Up. And what's the other one? You know, there's like really long sort of songs which build up over ages. No. One is added up day after day. Oh my God, I love I will walk. It's like that's kind of their version of the end. Okay. This is a very weird theory. It's very niche as well. It's not going to get people sharing your podcast. So let's change the subject. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to talk about Jim Morrison all night. What I want to talk about is your beginnings. Mm. The reason that you started making music in the first place, in the very, very beginning, why did you start? I loved music as a teenager, and it was kind of my thing. I, I was obsessed with Nirvana, but I was also obsessed with Bob Dylan. Mm -hmm. Those were probably my two biggest reference points. And I went to this guitar teacher, so I just started taking guitar lessons, and all I wanted to do was learn some basic chords. He was one of those, like... Man, let me, let me say this in a kind way. I don't know if I can. Like, you know, like guitar for the sake of guitar music. Mm -hmm. You know, like yes. Ingwi Malmsteam or, or Steve Vai, all these guys where they're just like 10 minute solos. Every song is a 10 minute solo. And they've got like a special deal on their guitar, like where Ibanez has to come personally to them and like adjust their tone and all of their stuff. You know, like they're very serious about the music. And so he liked that stuff. And so he got me like doing solos and learning modes. And then I remember I got an electric guitar. I got an electric guitar and it somehow coincided with me being suspended. <laughs> and it wasn't like my mom bought me a, a, an electric guitar because I was suspended. But what she did do, she got me an electric guitar and she didn't take it away when I was suspended, which is like basic parenting. You should have taken it away. So my week of suspension was like the greatest week of my life. I had like a little Marshall amp. I just used to jump around the room with distortion on, I used to play things like Wild Thing, you know? <laughs> just like four chords, but like tons. And then you do a solo. I love that sort of thing. How old were you then? 14. 
So I started playing when I was 14. I wrote a lot of my own songs. I've got like still lots, just like books of this. like, And I suppose I had the same problem then as I still do, which is that I my problem is not writing the songs. My problem is like, what do I do with them after I write them? You know, I remember having some, you know, quite traumatic experiences at talent competitions at King David, you know, with, I'd always be with other musicians and whatever. And then like the mic would get cut by mistake. It would always like go wrong in some way. So it gave me like a... Like, a, I've had some very terrible times on stage. The first time I ever performed comedy was at Rhodes University. It was a, a parody song that me and Sam Wilson, who went on to become, he's quite a successful writer. He writes, like, screenplays and novels and stuff. And we wrote this, like, rap song about being at Rhodes. And before I was going off, there was this, like, all the stoner guys at Rhodes. And they were my friends. And, like, I was like... I needed friends because I was new at road. So yeah. I, like, I wanted to impress these guys. And they said, come smoke this amazing <gasps> Durban poison. And I was like, I can't do it, guys. I have to go on and perform. And they said, it'll make you better. Oh, no. It'll make the words flow from your mouth in cascades. And like, they like made me think it was going to turn me into the greatest performer. So I smoked and then we went on stage and I, I just got this huge wave of paranoia. And then the song started and we were great. And we got to like the sixth line. And I just didn't remember my line. Oh, and no. so I stopped. And then everyone was like, oh. And so we were like, no, just give us another chance. Give us another chance. And I think we did that two times more. And at the exact same point, <laughs> I couldn't get no. further in the song. And I think it took me like two years to get back on a stage after that. But having had so many experiences now on a stage, you have been on hundreds of thousands of stages, I would say. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> that sounds good. Let's go with that. <laughs> I, don't, I haven't kept track. You're experienced and it is bound to happen, those things. Yeah. No, I mean, you, yeah. No, you are. You have to kind of get beyond them. And I swear, it's this weird thing when you say, like, I've been on all these stages. It's this weird feeling now of, like, it's all gone away. Like, the comedy stuff's all gone away. And it's this very weird feeling of, like, being able to play these big crowds but not doing it anymore. And also, like, people offer me gigs and then I'll have to say, no, I'm not doing it. And then yeah. they'll make me feel like I'm being stupid <sighs> or whatever. But, like, from my side, I had to count it because I wasn't enjoying it and also because, you know, I wasn't writing new material. I was like, this is now the fourth year. I'm basically trading off the same material. Mm. And, I, you know, when I started, it was like a new set every year. Mm. So that's when I decided I, I got to, you know, go in a new direction. And then I got into this political trouble and that didn't help at all because, <laughs> yeah, I got to a point where there, all there was was negative, you know, people shouting at me on my Deep Red Man page and all of that sort of stuff. So um, I disabled all the social media stuff and yeah. I never re-enabled it. Well, I'm excited for what's coming next. Yeah, maybe I am too. I don't know. <laughs> so yeah, all the songs I've written are very um, depressing. And that's the thing is before I was a comedian, all my stuff was so depressing and there's going to be no way of reconciling it with my, my comedy. And you, you don't need to. Yeah, no, I suppose I don't. If you were to look at your career as a timeline, would you give me three to five to ten <laughs> highlights, the highlights of your career? It's hard to say because, you know, like I said, I've, comedy has been a very different avenue to music. Mm. I would say early on in high society, my first band, the highlights would have been, you know, by the end of it, we were playing uh, gigs with 340 Mill and Max Normal. Those were like our heroes. So that yeah. was a big deal for us at the time. Then when that all imploded... I would say uh, my next highlight would be a tour. That when I became Deep Fried Man, he was a folk singer for about a year before he became a comedian. Yeah. And I went on this tour with James, who's a friend of both of ours, and with uh, Ade Omatade, who's a Nigerian drummer. He played percussion, and we just went to all these backpackers, and we just played, and that was an amazing memory. 
And then comedy, it's a hard one. There's so many big ones. Um, I mean, there's so many uh, sort of, you know, I mean, there's, it got surreal, you know, like I performed with a full choir for late night news live at the Lyric Theatre. So there was wow. like a full gospel choir behind me. That was amazing. I got to collaborate with, you know, all the best musicians that I can think of with maybe three guys who couldn't come um, when I was doing late night news. That was definitely another one. I mean, doing collabs with guys who were way beyond my weight. Like I would never <laughs> been able to collaborate with them as a musician. But yeah. As a comedian, I could. So that was another highlight. My first one-man show, which was uh, probably the most successful as well. Mm. And just to have a little theater to yourself, that's an amazing feeling. And yeah, there must be more. Oh, those are good ones. Ooh, Daily Maverick, The Gathering. They have this thing. It's like this political thing and it's got all the like, it's like got Julius Malema and Musi Maimane shouting at each other. It's like got stuff like that. And then I was like doing comedy in the middle and I did all this political comedy. And it was like my audience. Oh, fantastic. And was, was it well great. received? It was, yeah. Oh, exciting. Yeah. Those are good highlights. Yeah. It's been fun. I mean, uh, you know, it's hard to, that's what I wanted to ask you. It's like, how do you carry on once you've got kids? Like, how do you just carry on? I mean, do you need, do you have a lot of help from the people around you? Yeah, it's been really hard, actually. Obviously, I have Craigie. Mm. My parents are around and his parents are around. Yeah. A really lovely nanny between everyone. And my sister, who has kids as well. And okay. we have a, an extended family, yeah. which makes it a bit easier. And now they're getting older. Yeah. I think it's time to launch myself back into the music because it's easier now. But when yeah. they were little, I definitely took a bit of a hiatus. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard. I kind of felt at a certain point having kids as well, that comedy is just not suitable. <laughs> like some people just do it, but I don't know how. Like you go into all these gigs at night yeah. and then you're flying to this place and flying to, you know, it's always like casinos in Kimberley and stuff <laughs> like that. And you're flying around and left to my own devices. I like being at home. Yeah. We did a, a tour to Namibia, Cape Town, Namibia, that was supported by Concerts SA. Mm. But we did it as a family. So Craig and the two kids came with. And yeah. for the night shows that weren't great for kids, Craigie looked after them yeah. wherever we were staying. And then for the shows they could come to, they did. We did it as a family, and I, it was a lovely way to do it. But still, not easy. Yeah. How do you feel being a dad has impacted your career? It's very hard to say because there was so many different signs all pointing in the same direction. But I kind of feel like 2016 when we had Jack is when I started sort of realizing for the first time that I wanted to wind it down. Yeah. And uh, which I've done in between then and now. Yeah. I think with comedians, there's an expectation once you have kids, you're going to start doing all that kiddie material. And that was never the kind of comedian I was. You know? yeah. I'm not, I wasn't like a sort of personal comedian. I was more of like a topical comedian. So, yeah. <laughs> I think there's definitely like opportunity for you to have your sort of set about being a dad after you have kids. Yes. And lots of comedians have done that. Yeah. And music wise, um, you've obviously started writing some kids songs as well. Yeah. No, I had before I wrote the serious songs that I've been writing. I'm on about nine. <laughs> so I need a couple more if I want to record them. And the kids songs, I, yeah, I went through a phase where, you know, this is what I wanted to do. And like a lot of things, 
I did it, as in I got the songs, and then I was like, oh, I, you know, and I, organizing this and organizing <laughs> that. And I did like a show in front of some kids who didn't know what was going on. And so you just get a sense that in reality things are a bit harder. But I've got those songs. They're there. And I still do want to record them at some point. And I think my ideal would be to record them and release them with cartoons on YouTube. Yeah, so you have to, to do that. To work with an animator. We were talking about kindy music, and there are so many guys who do that, like the pop-ups, um, Casper Babypants and Elizabeth Mitchell, who have these amazing videos online, if you look. Thank you for reminding me about some of those names. I've been meaning to re-look up Casper sure. Babypants. He's amazing, and Elizabeth Mitchell is absolutely incredible. The pop-ups are really cool. They're like an indie band from New York, and it's like kids' music, but it's cool kids' music. <laughs> I'm going to go look them up. My kids, I'm yeah. sure, will love it. The Robot Dance. Jack makes me play that over and over again. That's by the pop-ups. And then there's Gustafa Yellowgold. Let's check out Gustafa Yellowgold. He's like this weird yellow creature that this guy invented, and he plays like kind of folky music, but it's about weird things. So I'm going to get all these names from you. We're going to mm. put the links to in the show notes if anybody's keen to go check them out. Oh, yeah, if you want your kids to be cool, or if you want them to listen to some... Some kids' music that's not going to drive you crazy. There's that, and then you can also just find normal songs that <laughs> kids can enjoy, like the Beatles. The Beatles is always good for kids. That is the truth. Let's talk a little bit about your depressing subject matter. What <laughs> inspires you? Well, I suppose a lot of guys, and I'm sure it's the same with you, is that your songwriting becomes a bit of a release. Yeah, It's kind of like therapy. So just whatever is happening in your life comes out. And it's, you know, it's not the good stuff generally because... Mm. You know, I mean, you get guys who just write happy song after happy song. And then I just wonder, are their lives just <laughs> that much happier? Because it could be something else. It could just be that that's the kind of emotion they tap into when they write, you know. Mm. I wrote this album as Deep Fried Man called Deep Fried Man is Not Amused. And I remember my dad's friend phoned him up after he heard the album. And he was like, is Daniel okay? <laughs> and it's like, even if you just read the track listing, it was like songs were called like, everything will die <laughs> and I'm not amused and sick of this shit. And like, it was just all of these, but I don't know why, but I, I also think that, um, you know, back then very much, there was a, like a little thread of comedy in it as well, you know, oh, so, definitely. you know, so there's, it's not this completely and utterly confessional songwriting. It's more like confessional, but with a small sense of being able to step back and make fun of yourself as well. Yeah. Which I think Cake is a good example of that. Cake has songwriting where it's like very much, um, it's confessional up to a point, but it's also, you know, you have, have a sense of humor about yourself in it as well. That was the saving grace of those two albums, my first two. I suppose the first one was a happy album compared to the second. <laughs> and then, yeah, the stuff I'm writing now, I'm, it's just like, I guess maybe I'm in a time in my life, or I think even the world is in a time where you can get away with, you know, writing a song that doesn't necessarily have hope in it. Yeah. But I mean, I've never found depressing songwriting. You know, you'll get people like, we'll talk about Elliot Smith and they'll talk about him like being this, you know, like he'll be the butt of jokes. Like in uh, Bojack Horseman, which is a show I like very much, they're always like using him as the punchline of any joke about something being depressing, you know. Yes. But I don't see it that way. I mean, I always found that sort of stuff uplifting. I kind of feel like there's something cathartic about feeling like someone else feels that way. Because, you know, in many spheres of life, you're always seeing the best of people. For the most part, no one is posting the bad stuff. So I think that's the importance. I think that's the beauty of depressing songwriting, so to speak. It's that sense of like, I'm not alone. I mean, I'm a fan of depressing music. Yeah. So you mentioned you've written these nine new tracks. Yeah. It sounds like the songwriting comes really easily to you. 
I don't say this to be funny or whatever, but the songwriting is the easy part for me. Like, I don't sit, when I was a comedian, I did because I had to, but I don't sit and think, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, bear. Da-da-da-da-da, oh, what rhymes with bear? You know what I mean? It's like, it's more just like I go into a dwell and 20 minutes later the song is there, at least the good ones. That's how it is. That's amazing. And do you find that the music and the words come together or simply? Yeah, I mean, I'm not a very musical musician <laughs> so yeah often they'll come together or other times it will just be the lyrics and then i'll find some music to put to them mm. i think you know listening to a lot of elliot smith in the last couple of years i think that's improved my music because he's got amazing chord progressions he listened to a lot of the beatles so he's got that almost sense of melody mm. and i think that's really what you want to do if you're making depressing music i mean the thing about elliot smith is if you take sort of the tone of his voice away which is he's just got an instantly kind of sad voice he's got yeah. a sad quality to it and if you take what he's singing about away what you're left with is this just really gorgeous pop songwriting, you know, as good as any, you know, the Eagles or the Beatles or any of these kind of classic rock guys, you know. In my early days, I was listening to a lot of hip hop. And I think, you know, it shows the first album that I made, certainly there wasn't much musicality. Mm. And, I, you know, I was lucky to have a good producer who kind of came and did a lot of overdubs, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, I've always been a, someone who's concentrated a lot less on the sound and on the lyrics I'm in awe of people who are so good at style that the substance doesn't matter. I would give as an example Bon Iver. Such mm. incredible music. But if you think about it and you sit down and you think, what is he singing about? Mm. Often it's very obscure references to stuff in his life or stuff that often I think he's singing something. And then I see the lyric sheet and I'm like, I literally didn't get a single <laughs> lyric right. And, and so also the way he's singing, it's not that important what he's saying. Yeah. I, so I think he's definitely a triumph of hundred percent style over yeah. substance which is that i don't really know what he's singing about or care <laughs> it's just the layers that he builds and, yeah. and the way that he redefined folk music basically and then he went on to you know now what he makes is barely folk music i like that about him you know like his last few albums have been experimental glitchy electronica which i like james blake is another one i love guys who mix something as old school as just good folky singer songwriting with like really off kilter electronic production stuff like that so you listen to a lot of music? I listen to a lot of music, yeah. I'm lucky in that I have a lot of different kinds of music that I like. Um, yeah. In fact, if anything is a problem, it's like choosing what to listen to and when. And what I've been doing the last couple of weeks is I was on too much depressing folky stuff. I went through a period where all I listened to was Phoebe Bridges and Connor Oberst and Elliot Smith and guys like that. And then now I'm trying to get back into like what the I supposed cool music would be in terms of rock, uh -huh. like Cage the Elephant and uh, Portugal the Man and all these like new bands who I always hear or I maybe know one song. Or um, who, what's another example? Paolo Nutini. Paolo Nutini is amazing. Ooh, another example. <laughs> Gosh, like Michael Kiwanuka or something like that. Okay. So he does basically like old soul. He's this British soul musician he's got like some folky songs which will honestly blow your mind but then most of his stuff is like kind of otis redding marvin gay style soul so yeah there's going to be a lot of links in this podcast no well interestingly <laughs> enough i was talking to quilla and he suggested that we take all these music suggestions and create a shotgun story playlist. Playlist? Yeah. Oh gosh, yeah. So we're going to include all of these oh, guys gosh. in that playlist. One track by everybody. Oh nice. That'll oh, be nice. fun. Ooh, I was listening to a lot of Jack White. That's my final one. Like all his solo albums I'd never heard before. So I've been doing that as well. 
Oh, yeah. Yay. <laughs> I mean, you've just given us an entire playlist. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we were talking about collabs because, I mean, you and I have collabed a little bit. Yeah. What are your thoughts on collabs in general? I love collabs. I really do. It's never what you expected it will be. And that's the best part is you never know what the one person's going to bring, how that's going to mix with what you bring. I am not a musician who's played with other musicians a lot. Yeah. And when I do, it's very special for me. Because I, I think compared to a lot of guys who grew up in a sort of band scene and there was always a drummer behind them, there was always a bassist behind them. Yeah. For me, that was often not the case. You know, my default is just me on the stage on my own. Even when I did form a band, there was no drummer. So I think it's performing with certain kinds of musicians is very special to me. Mm. My youngest brother, Meg, electronic jazz. He's like got a jazz background. He plays piano and saxophone, yeah. but then he also makes his own beats. And I've been doing some stuff with him, and that's been amazing. And it's amazing to collaborate with someone who's very different to you. Yes. Yeah, I'm, I love collaborations. I really, really do. Is there anything about them that you find challenging? Well, yeah. I mean, look, most of the collaborations I've done have been through Late Night News with Louis Agola. Uh, it was like a satirical news show, like mm. The Daily Show in America or something like that, based on something like that. And I did this segment at the end, like a two-minute song rounding up the news. Yeah. And I did that on my own for about a year. And then they said, you know, we kind of feel like we've done what we can do with the segment. Do you have any ideas of how we can take it forward? And I said, yeah, let's get other people in. Mm. And no one had thought of that. And it really just brought the whole thing alive because we had everything from like your Mikasa and uh, your like most famous musicians in South Africa, Kwaito legends, you know, like Casper Njovest and all these big rappers to, you know, like, to Naming James and you and, yeah. and uh, Rambling Bones. You know, it was just like there were so many collabs. It was every week, so we had time to just get through everyone. <laughs> and it was very special. But but the thing about that kind of collab is it's not like you're making something for an album where you've got like a day to work on it. It was very much like you're in and out of there within three hours, and that yeah. includes the rehearsals. It was very much um, so a quick get, get it down kind of collab. Yeah. So that can go horribly wrong. So the thing is, Nine out of ten times I would gel with the musician, it would be fine. But like the tenth time it would be someone who someone else recommended. I'm not a fan of the music. They're not, you know, there's very little that we have in common. Yeah. And they don't get where I'm coming from on a humor point. Of, you know, like they just, you know, they don't find what I've written particularly funny. So it's just this thing of like, oh how do we get this person to deliver the lines and get them out Yeah. in a way that we, we all keep our dignity? <laughs> it just becomes about that. But yeah, I, I think... The idea of collaborating on an album, mm. that's very exciting because you've got the time and you can craft something great. Also just live, you know, like I like the idea of just getting up at the end of the show and bringing someone on. I mean, you know, that's just magical. John Savage is someone I went to, to varsity with mm. um, and he was like the king of the music scene at Rhodes. Yeah. And when I was thinking about it the other day, I was like, he never really did much. He had this amazing thing that he did, which is he got on stage and he got brilliant people to come with him. I'm not like undermining his own creativity because just to even curate that is incredible. Yeah. And he is a good musician in his own right. And if anything, I could compare it to the Gorillas, which is that Damon Albarn is in the Gorillas, yeah. But now they do these collabs where you're like, in a way, no offense to Damon Albarn, but his part of it is, becomes kind of irrelevant, you know? Like, it's not like what you're listening to the song for. So, yeah. so I feel like that, that way about, you know, about, about collabs in general, it's like, uh, so it's that brilliance of 
he always used to win the Battle of the Bands, John Savage, but just through mixing stuff up and yeah. through saying, like a lot of the time I would say like, no, there's no way we're going to get a violinist and a rapper and a banjo, you know, like on stage at the same time. And he would just not see those limitations and it would happen and he would do it. And that was amazing. You say that. I mean, it's so interesting that you say that. But didn't we at Grahamstown one year on Rob Van Furen and Martin Evans' show, didn't you and me and Fred with a banjo <laughs> get up on stage and do something together? I think so. I can't remember what. It's me very, neither. very, very shaky what it was, but we did. I like that. That's the nice thing about comedy, is that musical comedy, is that you always feel like the comedy gives you leeway yeah. to not be perfect. So you really do feel confident in saying, you know, get this person up, get that person up, et cetera, et cetera. You know, that show that Rob did was very cool. Yeah, and, very cool. And we did a similar one the following year where we had Laurie Levine and Josie Fields yeah. just performing and then there'd be comedy and stuff like that. I love that idea of like a variety of stuff, which I think was inspired by Rob and Pants on Fire. You know, this idea of just not seeing limitations. I like that when it comes to collaborations, I think the best way to think of it is to the worst thing you can do is try and get someone who matches you. You just got to get anyone, you know, like the more different they are to you, then the better. That's the better. That's where the magic comes in. I agree a thousand percent, actually. Do you have any tips for musicians on how, from your experience, how to be a better collaborator? Well, look, I mean, maybe if you want to take this advice, go onto YouTube first and watch the stuff that I did with all these guys from Late Night News. <laughs> maybe after you watch it, you'll be like, I'm not going to take this guy's advice. <laughs> I mean, I don't even know. Was it good? Wasn't it good? I was, that's a struggle that I have as a musician as well. It's like I perform and then I'm like, was that good or not? Uh -huh. And like some guy will tell you it's good, but you always know that the feedback you're getting is on the more positive side, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Like people are kind when they give feedback generally, you know. So I always wonder, what was I really like? But this is off the topic. The, the topic was really like, what would I say? And I would say in terms of collaborating, the best thing to do is just listen. The worst thing you could do as a collaborator is you've got to come into it like, what does this other person have? I'm going to listen and listen and listen mm -hmm. and put myself in it to the minimum, if, if you know what I mean. Like, yeah. make it about the, the other person. And ideally, if the other person has that same instinct, then I think it always works out really well. Because I think that's what you need in a collab is you need space. Yeah, Like, you can't just have two people going full steam ahead shouting on top of each other, you yeah. know? So it really is about space. So I guess that would be the advice is, you know, don't feel like because some amazing saxophonist who you've always wanted to work with and never thought you'd get to work with is in the studio with you, don't think that now you've got to bring out every single trick in the book, you know? Just totally. keep it simple. I think that's great advice. What you said just now about uh, most feedback you get is positive. It's so interesting. And I wonder if it's a male, female thing, but a lot of the women that I've spoken to, the kind of feedback that they get is, you shouldn't wear that. You oh, shouldn't gosh. do your hair like that. Oh, gosh, yeah. I mean, no, I think that's very terrible. So look, first of all, when I say most feedback is positive, I mean most personal feedback that you'll get at a show. Yeah. Obviously, social media has created this thing where people feel like they can say whatever they want to you. I'm talking about coming up to you at a show. But coming up to you at a show. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Uh, as a woman, I think there was a funny meme about that the other day <laughs> where there was like a picture of a woman holding a guitar and a man holding a guitar. And the woman holding a guitar said guitarist. And <laughs> the man holding a guitar said male guitarist. <laughs> 
they were making all these jokes like, oh, that male guitarist is great. He reminds me of that other guy who has absolutely nothing in common with him musically, but also happens to be male and play a guitar. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's all that sort of stuff. And I think that is very true of like uh, female musicians. I don't know if it would be feedback from other women or if it would mainly be feedback from men, but there is that sense of like, guy will say there was a good show but you know you should smile more or something like that like I mean, what that <laughs> exactly happens <laughs> you'd think that just no one would be that tone deaf but it does it happens yeah. so i mean i think it's hard you know as a woman musician you need to as a musician you need a thick skin and i'm sure with stuff like that you need a doubly thick skin as a female musician and i think you know it must be hard because a lot of female songwriters, you know, like all songwriters, are not, you know, are maybe quite fragile people or people who don't have the thickest skin in the world. I mean, I don't think your singer-songwriter is your personality type that has the thickest skin. Yeah. So I think, you know, artists generally feel quite deeply. And I think the idea of getting this just horrible feedback, which makes you wonder what you're doing it for in the first place, you know, yeah. that must be just half the battle is just ignoring that stuff. Yeah, I mean, and that is just a, a side note on a scene full of challenges. Yeah. And this leads me to my next section, actually. What do you think are some of the challenges that musicians today are facing with the industry? Sure. I mean, I'm not someone who's generally positive about <laughs> many things. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that I'm not sure if I would be able to see the best, no matter what era we were in. But we happen to be in an era which is, uh, you know, in, in many ways we are in an uncharted territory in terms of the fact that, like, I think it's harder to make a living doing whatever you want to do than it was. You know, it's harder to own a home. Just to make ends meet is harder. You know, if, I think there's a sense with everyone that, like, prices keep going up, mm. salaries keep staying the same. There's like a big sense of frustration around that. And I think it's a very hard one in the music industry because, you know, at the moment we've got a situation where people are not being paid enough from streams. To, you know, it's actually ridiculous. You've got companies like Spotify and Apple Music, which is a mirror of what's happening on YouTube. And all mm -hmm. this, and what we, we've gone through is this revolution where technology has become so much more powerful, yeah. which is good. But the problem is that we're at that stage of that revolution where we're still seeing the actual platforms themselves mm. as having more power than ultimately I hope they will. Once upon a time, the biggest revolution in technology was the telephone. Yeah. Because before that, you had no way of talking to someone in person, you know, hearing the voice of a person on the other end of the world. Now you could do that. Yeah. Maybe it was like this at the time, but I would struggle to think of a situation where suddenly the phone becomes all important and the owner of the phone company is the new, you know, the richest man in the world, etc. But that's what's happened with this social media. Totally. And in, on YouTube, you've got a situation where uh, making content, you, the people who make money from it are literally getting hundreds of millions of hits. Yeah that's when you start making money. It's a struggle if you're getting like 30,000 or so hits a video, which is a lot, you know, that's yeah. a lot of people. So it's hard. It's, and then that's mirrored in terms of things like Apple Music and Spotify. Streams are not going to make anyone, you know. And I think for a long time, musicians have low-key been working as in the music is not their biggest 
you know, so a lot of musicians will have merchandise. A lot yeah. of musicians will have, the, you know, the, the live shows will make them money. Uh, but the idea of an album making you money is almost a joke at this point. I think I'm, I'm a realist and a pessimist at the mm -hmm. same time. And I'm someone who can easily talk myself out of doing things. Yes. And I think that a lot of what I haven't done has been because of, like, I remember going and sitting down when Deep Fried Man was still a big deal. And I went and sit with Chris the electro mode owner of the label and he said well you need 60,000 rand to make a decent album if you're lucky you'll make it back if you're really lucky you'll make 10,000 rand on top of that you'll essentially use it as a business card to give to people absolutely and that's a depressing place for music to be you know the flip side of that as a consumer I can go on Apple Music and listen to almost anyone I want right exactly. now which is incredible as a listener it's incredible but I think what we're all struggling with is how do we, how do we find a way for it to be beneficial to Spotify and to the musicians on Spotify and the, the people listening? And, and we haven't worked that out yet. We really haven't. Yeah, I mean, music's a tough one. It, it can be depressing because, you know, an example that I, I think is, you know, it's like I've been to London and New York. Mm. And in both places, I was just shocked at how many amazing musicians I saw on the streets, you know, yeah. like busking. So it's not like in South Africa, like literally where, you know, you can book yourself a corner as a busker and you can basically just be awful and you know, if people give you a couple of coins, you know, you'll see some good guys here, but it's like by accident, you know, it's like, but there it's a big deal to busk in certain places. You need a license. Everyone's very protective of their corners. Mm -hmm. You have to audition. So you actually have to be good. And I remember like there was a, a woman playing solo guitar and vocals like a, Tracy Chapman type thing mm. in the subway in New York and everyone just stopped what they were doing. It was just unbelievable. And the amazing thing is, and I don't know how it works, but the amazing thing is that after it was done, it was almost like a trance was broken and everyone just went back to their, their normal lives. You know, Maybe a couple of people walked over to her, gave her some coins. But for the most part, I think most people did this thing in their brains where they were like, Something incredible has just happened, but I have no idea how to assimilate it into my life and I'm late for my meeting, yeah. so I'm just going to go. So I think there's that, with music, it's that very hard, it's so hard to catch. <sighs> and that's not only as a, you know, that can be in, in so many different ways. As a performer, it's so hard to make the idea that you have in your head what it should be, yeah. you know, to catch that creativity and turn it into something. But likewise, it's also very hard to feel like you've, sure, I've um, spoken myself into a corner. No, no, I understand. To absorb it or to receive it. Yes, I don't know what's going to happen. But, you know, the, the problem is at the moment to think about what's going to happen to music. Mm. It's almost like, you know, what's going to happen to everything. You yeah. know, it's almost like we don't have the luxury. The thing is, the arts and entertainment are so important. Mm. But at the same time, there are things that can only function at their best in an ideal world. Yeah. If the world is not ideal, then, you know, art will suffer. And I think that's what we're going through now. It's like, will we even have a world? It, it's, it's so hard to think about because, I mean, even a lot of the guys living their best lives as musicians. Mm -hmm. So the most uh, successful musicians in the world right now are still your classic rock behemoths, like your Bruce Springsteen or your The Eagles or uh, guys like that. Uh, you know, even I'd put some newer bands like Coldplay in that category who are going around the world making huge amounts of money. But... Even like I read an interview, I can't remember, was it Led Zeppelin? No, it wasn't. It was like one of those big rock bands. And they said, you know, we're quite um, ashamed of our carbon footprint. It was Pink Floyd. 
Yeah. It makes more sense anyway, because of, of all of the like big rock bands, they're the ones who've kind of like got a bit of a conscience or something like that. And they were like saying, on the one hand, you feel like you play this really loved music and you're going around the world and being beloved. Yeah. But on the other hand, it's this really selfish thing of like, what are you doing to the world in the process? And it's like in this situation where we're becoming more and more aware of like how bad it is to fly and stuff like that. What does that mean for musicians? You know, yeah. I don't know because I think that, you know, in 10 years time, it won't necessarily be the case that arena concerts will be as much of a big thing they are now. I think one thing COVID's done is it's kind of scaled the world down a bit. Yeah. So what's it going to be like? Is it going to be like, you know, you're going to see your idol on Zoom and they'll be like, tell you, yeah, I, d I don't know. I don't know what it's going to be. Because that sounds terrible. Yeah, that sounds, sounds terrible. terrible. But at the same time, so does the entire world being destroyed because too many people are flying. Yes. <laughs> so it's a bit of a, so it's a, bit of a stalemate, you know? Human beings, we're not wired to make huge sacrifices, the kind that we needed to make in those situations. And you know that because the people who care the most about our environment are still people flying around the world to conferences to talk about it. You yeah. know? Uh, apparently, Greta has her own boat or something, and she doesn't <laughs> fly. You know, But I mean, she's probably like your exception in terms of someone who actually has as much of a social conscience to be able to act on it. Absolutely. But you know, your average person knows what's needed, but just can't make those sacrifices. Even though you know that it's intrinsically unfair that half the people in the world can't make ends meet while you've got like a nice house and a roof over your head and food and all of that stuff. You're not about to sacrifice any of those things, yeah. you know? So it's hard. I mean, this is very abstract in terms of how it links to music, but I guess like we're at a time where there's so much stuff to work out that music is the least of our worries, but at the same time, you know, it's our life. I don't know how it's going to work or anything like that, mm. but... Maybe we can use music to work it out. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> you know, the problem with being a musician is that you love doing it so much. Yeah. That I think in, this applies to all art is we've convinced ourselves that we can subsist on applause alone. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? There's that sense. You kind of feel like, you know, every time I do a gig, I get a, a warm round of applause. I get people coming up to me afterwards saying that they enjoyed it. I get a really warm feeling. I go home feeling fuzzy that night and really that sustains me. But the problem is that that doesn't sustain you physically. You might have lost money on that <laughs> show where you've like, it's possible. You know? More than likely. Yeah, you know, so you've lost money on that show but you feel really great about it. And I think that's the problem with a lot of art and music especially is that we need validation and it's been very easy for the world to convince us that all we need is that validation to get by. You know, it's so hard. It's like, it's either famine or feast because for every struggling musician, there's someone who's like literally making stupid money from it, you know, yeah. but well, I would say there's maybe a tiny amount of people making stupid money off it while the rest of us are struggling. You asking me all the questions where I can give good depressing answers and people can listen <laughs> to this and just get depressed. But the flip side of it is I do believe that like, when you zone in, when you zoom into things, things can seem very tough. But when you zoom out and you get some perspective, suddenly you see that you, if you zoom out of the world, you don't even see the billions of people writhing around. All you see is this beautiful blue-green ball. And that sort of feeling makes me feel like there have always been struggles and we've always sort of gotten by. Yeah. And maybe we always will and maybe we'll work this out and maybe best case scenario will evolve and evolve and evolve and eventually become, you know, a species of people where there's no war and uh, 
musicians get paid you know mm. it could happen so. see i i kind of have been leaning towards the idea that creativity is our birthright and somehow we make it work and somehow yeah. we survive and i feel like the universe and this is going to sound super nebulous but the universe supports you right i do think yeah i do think to a certain extent the I think the universe maybe gives you what you need more than what you want. Yes. But I do feel that way about art as well and about music is that if it's really important, then it will get out there. You know what I mean? Yes. I remember, you know, I, I was initially very skeptical and a lot of my friends were doing crowdfunding mm. and I was very cynical about it at the time. And when I think back, I was like, why? And I think what it was is it was this jealousy that I felt that they believed in their stuff enough to to ask because you know like um, Amanda Palmer she's mm. got that thing like the art of asking yes. that stuff kills me because I struggle with it so much I like can't stand asking people for favors I can't stand um, you know she talks about like some person they've just met and she's staying in their house in <laughs> Peru or something like that you know that stuff makes me feel uncomfortable and I guess with me it's like I feel the other way like instead of crowdfunding and asking people to pay me money so that I can make an album I almost feel like it's like if my music is that good then I should be able to just make an album and people will buy it. Sadly, it doesn't work that way, but that's, mm. that's the way I convince myself that, you know what I mean? I just, I can't stand hustling in any way. I, mean, I can't stand the asking of it. You know, I can't stand the idea of like, you've got a big gig and your friends have to come. You know, it's like, there's nothing worse than that. Yeah. You know, it's like, ideally music should be like, you're there because people want you there. And... You know, I've struggled often with that. I often err on the side of like, well, if no one cares whether I'm making music or not, I might as well not do it. And, you know, even now, this new set of songs, I'm like, these are good songs, but are they are they any better than the depressing songs that some guy in Sweden is making? Like, I don't know. I mean, it's so interesting because in the car on the way here, I promised myself that I wasn't even going to talk about self-worth. But it all comes down to self-worth. It does. I honestly think that's, I've, I've always battled with um, low self-esteem. Yeah. And I think like a lot of people who do battle with low self-esteem, it's a fluctuating thing with yes. me. And I think with a lot of people that it's like, you can go from thinking that you're worthless to thinking that you're great. Yes. And it's very confusing to deal with those two polar opposites. And it's like, the more experience you get in life, the more you realize that someone with absolutely nothing to offer, who is confident and smooth and sure of themselves mm. can get anything they want in life. Someone with an incredible amount of talent, but who doesn't know how to speak up, who doesn't know how to ask, doesn't know how to get what they want, doesn't know how to put their foot in the door, all that sort of stuff, mm. that's worthless, which is sad. Yeah. So the truth is about a lot of the most successful musicians is that their personal lives were complete messes from beginning to end. Many of them died young. Many of them had to sacrifice everything to be what they were like yeah. someone like jim morrison had to sacrifice everything including his life to be that completely wild and untamed uh, ball of dionysian excess you know mm. what i mean like that's how rock stars you know less so these days but especially the classic rock star the way that it worked was it's like you lived vicariously through them yes. because you have a long life and probably have a day job and whatever but that guy doesn't care about any of that stuff and he's going to burn out like a big Roman candle or you know what I mean and mm -hmm. it's, it's inspiring but at the same time 
would you want to be that person? I mean, that person was dead before they were 30. You know, that a lot of the more ambitious musicians that you see, mm. their success came at huge costs to their family life, their personal life. Someone like Phoebe Bridges as well, I saw in an interview, you know, she's not someone who, who has ever really wanted this huge life. Mm. And it's hard when you, you, you suddenly are at arm's length from your friends. You, you know, there's always a sense when it comes, and even me, my success having been quite small and in comedy, even me, I went through a period where it was like I felt disconnected from everyone else because yeah. I felt like I was in another world to them, you know. And it's a very dangerous. I guess what I'm trying to say is whatever you want in life and whatever you get in life, it's at the expense of something else. Some of the best musicians I know who never got their music out there to the extent that it should have been. Yeah. But lots of people adore their music more than they know. And they've had a very, very involved you know, family life where they've traveled a lot or they've done this or they've done that. I guess it's like the same way as I'm thinking like I could be this comedian playing a different show every night in a different city in a different all around the world and have no family yeah you know would that be better it would be different well see this is my thing at this point in my life and in my career yeah my definition of what it means to be successful yeah as a musician certainly has changed yeah I'd like to be a working musician yeah. who can actually make a living that can pay the bills. Yeah. I, I don't need to be playing a show every night from one night in Tokyo yeah. and the next year in New York. You know, yeah. those kind of those old ideas that I had of what it means to make it yeah. have definitely changed. Um, I'd like a balanced life. Yeah. But that was actually financially viable. <laughs> You know, like a job. Because, yeah. you know, music is an actual job. Yeah. And I think, you know, some guys who have managed to make it a career, and it's amazing, you know. Yeah. I mean, I know someone called Philip Miller who makes classical music, yeah. contemporary classical music, and he's had this very fruitful relationship with William Kentridge. He did all of William Kentridge's early um, animations and operas and all the stuff that he staged. And... This guy was a lawyer and he basically quit and became a score songwriter and he supported himself, you know, for decades doing that. And so, yeah, I mean, it can happen. It can. Annie DeFranco is weirdly one of the biggest successes financially. Yeah. Interesting. I didn't know that. This is incredible. So she was one of the first indie success stories yeah. in that she was never interested in hearing about her label. She always did her stuff herself. Mm. At a certain stage, she got onto one of those lists, you know, I don't know which one, but like, you know, those Forbes top 10 successful musicians lists and wow. people were shocked. And then they found out that what it was, was that her business model was better, which is that she sold like maybe a 20th of the old amount of albums as the other people on that list. Mm. But the difference was for each of the albums sold, those other guys were getting maybe 5%. She was getting like 80% of every album sold. That yeah. was her business model because she would do oversee everything herself, basically managed to get the margin up that she received from her own albums to like 80%, which is pretty incredible. And from incredible. that, she didn't have to sell millions of albums to become a financial success. So that was pretty inspiring. But I think now it's like, you know, the long tail, all of these books about like, you know, the long tail is Malcolm Gladwell, I think. It's like one of those books about... Um, is it even Malcolm Gladwell? I could be wrong. It was this very influential book at the time because it was the first book to kind of see how media is affected by the internet. 
and basically how one of the things the book argues is that the way the world is now, mm. you don't need to make pop music to do well. You can do whatever you do, no matter how weird it is. Yes. And because of the internet, you can find your audience. And that's the theory. I believe that. Yeah, no, I, I also believe that. So it's a pretty powerful thing. So, and, I, and I think this is what people need to look at in terms of like whether it could be a situation where in 20 years' time, musicians have cracked the code of how to make money from music. Yeah. You know, in the internet age, it's just that we haven't done it yet, but we need to think in terms of those sort of things. But I do think like you see stuff out there, which has got like 3 million views on YouTube and it's just so weird. Yeah. And you realize that you can be as weird as you want to be. You can do whatever you want to do and you can find your audience. It's just about knowing how. And I think it's about building your own community. Yeah. But you need to have self-esteem. Yeah, to do that. To do that. Who was it as well? There was someone in their community. So it's like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> it's very embarrassing, actually, who it is. <laughs> I read a whole article about them. I don't even want to say them. <laughs> you know, remember, do you remember Mbop? I do. Hanson. Mm -hmm. They were the three boy boy band type thing, and they were all family members. Mm -hmm. So they have had this very successful second part of their career, mm -hmm. which is that they've got these diehard fans. And what they did is because it's a much smaller fan base very committed yeah. is they started doing things of like you can get a special message from them or you can get a the cd sent to you signed like all of these special things they kept offering their fans you know the kind of thing that if you are a real fan wouldn't be accessible to you if it was justin bieber or whatever yeah. but because it's hansen it was accessible to them so they did all these really you know innovative things and i thought that was cool de la soul one of my favorite hip-hop groups crowdfunded their album and they did it in tiers. So it's like you could put very little in and then you just get the album. But then it keeps going up and up and up until like the last one is like you get to spend a day with them <laughs> and go um, looking at records. Because, you know, that's what you do in hip hop is you search for you crate dig, you search for records. So you're going to spend the day doing that. Then you're going to end it off at a basketball game. Then they're going to take you out for supper. And then on top of it, you get your face on the album, <laughs> like all this stuff. And it's like you, you can never do that sort of I think it's pretty cool. I mean, this is not some backyard hip hop. This is De La Soul, one of, one of the most influential hip hop groups. And that's what they did for one of the albums. So I think there's, if you have the self belief, you're right. But you, there's so much possibility. You know, if you if you know what you're doing in terms of like speaking right to your fans. And also if you're willing to try new things. And yeah. I think maybe that's the solution, experimenting, because the old model's not working. Yeah. And we've got to try something new. Yeah. Look, I think COVID did this thing where it's like, in a way it made us really nervous, but in another way it gave us a lot of hope. Uh -huh. Because when lockdown first happened, there was the sense of like birds that you'd never seen before were flying up above you. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like suddenly natural life seemed to be it's like it seems like all these birds who live in fear of human beings the whole time finally sort of felt like it was safe to come out and fly around a bit and there was the sense you heard in certain countries like you saw pictures of the skyline in certain places where for the first time there was a clear skyline no pollution it yeah. did amazing things like that but in a way by now it's kind of like business as usual things are slowly sliding back into the norm and i think there's a lot of potential for us to move to the next level of existence in terms of living on earth in a sustainable way and yeah. in a way which doesn't harm because you know the way we've lived since the beginning of time it's been about 
everything we do to succeed has to be at the expense of someone else. You know, yeah. our, our world is built on war. You should watch that David Attenborough thing. I don't know if you've watched it. Not yet. So it's the Netflix. So his whole thing is you need to rewild the world because he's been in this thing and he's seen it happening over like 80 years. Mm. And what he says is that what's happened is that the amount of habitat, natural habitat that the natural world has the sea and the land it's just shrunk and shrunk and shrunk and what we need to do is we need to rewild because none of these species are going to be able to survive if we just keep on depleting and depleting and depleting so there's also talk about you know the world needs to be more villagey and less global Global. stuff like that so who knows how much of it will stick and how much of it won't but i feel like we have an opportunity and it's about thinking where's music going to fit into that you know i mean with the internet I do think that there's the potential for you to have an entire career where you can reach people around the world virtually. Mm. That doesn't necessarily have to mean a Zoom performance, but ways of maintaining communities, which are actually really great, which you couldn't do before. And I mean, I really do think that there's some guys who have dared and who've really made successes out of it, whether it's as a musician or as a YouTuber or a blogger or any of that sort of stuff. It's like you can make a career from literally talking about your favorite thing, whether that's knitting or, you know what I mean? Yeah. That's just insane to think about that. The way the world is stacked, it doesn't have to be like this. It doesn't have to be that like you have to do a job you hate so that you can get by. You know know what I mean? And I don't think it will always be like that. I think we have the potential to conquer that. And, you know, maybe it's going to have to do with the robots because they say the robots are going to come and take everything <laughs> over. So the thing is, for every person who thinks that's going to be a huge disaster, there's someone saying, but wait a second, maybe we'll all end up being able to do what we love. Imagine if all the menial tasks that we hate doing are taken care of by robots and then we can literally study all day if we want to or make music all day if we want to, you know. So That sounds wonderful. I, I, do you know what? I'm pushing the positivity now near the end of this podcast because I don't want it to <laughs> be like, that guy is so depressing. I'm envisioning utopias here. I definitely didn't have any positive feeling about robots until this very moment. <laughs> well, look. Let's put it this way. There's about 30% chance of what I said happening. There's about 70% chance of them destroying us all. So I'm going to turn that in my mind. <laughs> Glass half full. Okay, so now I'll run down towards the end. Is there a song that you wish that you'd written? Mm. Uh, do you know what? There's a song by Regina Spector. Oh, I love her. One of the more commercial songs that people know, which is on the radio. Uh, I don't know if you know it, but on the radio, got amazing lyrics, but there's a second verse, which is just like, very simple, but some of the best lyrics I've ever heard in a song. Um, I almost feel like I want to read it out, but I don't want to get it wrong. So maybe I need to Google it. But it's it's like, I'm going to try and do it without looking it up because that's how much I love it. But this is how it works. You stare inside yourself and you take the things you like and try to love the things you took. And then you take that love you made and you put it into someone else's heart, pumping someone else's blood and walking arm in arm. You hope it doesn't get harmed. But even if it does, you just do it all again. That's, I think, one of the most profound pieces, you know, like when I heard that, I was like, man, yeah, I wish I wrote that. (laughs) I can understand why you wish you wrote that. Yeah. Listen to the song on the radio. You um, need, we need the link. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to put it on and I'm going to yeah. put it on the playlist as well. Um, okay, wish this collaboration. Do you know what I would say? My wish is that my music could get to a level 
where I could collaborate with the kind of musicians that I listen to. Does that make sense? I love that. <laughs> you know what I mean? I love that. And you will manifest that. I can see it. <laughs> I can feel it. It's happening. Mm. Yeah, it's already yours. Yeah. Do you know what I've, I've been feeling like? I want to write. And that's what I want to become my career eventually is I want to write books and then I want to do music at the same time. You know what I'm saying? And yes. I think those two things go hand in hand a lot. And I was thinking, I want to be like Rodriguez. That's the kind of fame that I want. I want to be like that guy where like in 20 years time, people are like, oh my God, what happened to that guy? <laughs> this album and it's still here and we're still listening to it. It's still so good and stuff like that. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I think there's that cult like I want to be a real, like a cult figure more than I want to be famous, famous. I don't want to be that guy who's like got his own tour bus and people recognize you wherever you go. I want to be like that guy where on the airport on a normal economy class flight, everyone's just going about their business. But that one guy on the plane is like, oh, oh my God, it's you. You wrote that album. <laughs> got me through some tough times or whatever. Oh, it's funny that you say that. Just today, I was talking to someone and I was saying that Everyone I wanted to invite on this podcast was someone who I believe has a cult following. So no one who is mainstream, yeah. who you could say, oh, that person gets played on the radio all the time and we yeah. all know who that is, but who has a loyal following of people who adore what they do. I feel like I was getting that when I started. Then I moved across to comedy, and then it's a very different kind of audience that you got. I think I've I got a loyal audience there, but it was a different kind of audience. Yeah. The problem is, the truth about comedy for me is that it always felt like a little bit of a compromise. Mm -hmm. I never came from the perspective of like, I, it was my first love or anything like that. It came from the perspective of like, it seemed like a fit and people would give me attention that I wouldn't get in the music scene. Yeah. And that's why I loved it. But there was a sense that like, there's still guys who remember maybe my jeans aren't skinny enough and that's that whole era and oh, i felt I like i was that. building up like a cult following then and i feel like i'm gonna try try to get back into it now. but this is the thing about a cult following is you still have that following i, I mean we so. all remember high society do you know what the cool thing is i feel like where i'm at now is that high society and deep red man's early stuff the folky stuff was very much there were gimmicks to it as in like there was a bit of a hip-hop thing here and now the stuff i'm writing now is like that's stopped being important to me so it's all those that that stuff stripped away yeah and it's just the straight just lyrics and vocals there's no like you know sense of wanting to get a remix done or anything like that and i'm enjoying that and yeah I think, if anything, this has inspired me that I need to do something with my songs. Uh, there is no question. You have to come out of the labyrinth yeah. and share what you've learned. Well, I was thinking the first thing I'm going to do is literally just play them on Facebook and put them on my page and see what kind of a reaction I got. Yeah. And then if people are like, wow, you should really record that, then I'll start raising money to record it. And if people are like, don't say anything, then I'm like, okay, they can live on Facebook. <laughs> And your homework is to go and read Amanda Palmer's Art of Asking. I suppose so, yeah. And read it and stop being jealous that she knows how to ask for stuff and start asking for stuff myself. I have a sneaky suspicion that there are a number of people who would want to support what came out because um, we're excited to hear. Cool, yeah. yeah. I'm looking forward to getting back onto the scene, to the music scene and being a real musician again.
I feel like we're about to create a new one, a new scene here in Joburg. Nice, I hope so. Coming out of lockdown, feeling positive. Exactly. In light of everything we've spoken about, the positive and the darker side, what advice would you have for an indie musician, not even a young indie musician just starting out, but someone who has been doing it and does it for the love of it, regardless of the challenges, what advice would you have? I guess that if I had one regret, it would be that I didn't just care less and do more, if mm -hmm. you know what I mean. It's like I have recorded albums worth of songs that I haven't put out. Mm. And a lot of that's been, you know, is that the right thing to put out now? And is it the right, you know, it's like, I think if anything, my advice would be care less about whether what you write today fits into what you wrote yesterday. Care less about whether it's being recorded in a perfect way. Care less about those sort of things. The reason why you're doing it in the first place is because you love music and because, you know, you've got songs you need to get out. And yeah. And also just to care less about what people think. I think I'm, I care a lot about what people think. And if I've learned one thing, it's that advice will knock you around in a million different directions. Yeah. It's like you get to a point where you'll literally get two people telling you the complete opposite <laughs> thing and you respect both of them. Yeah. And they're telling you the complete opposite thing about what your next move should be or what that song should sound like. And I don't think it's something that comes naturally to everyone, but as much as you can, Try and just listen to your own voice. Like, I think people struggle. I certainly struggle to trust my own voice more than outside. I'm the kind of person who, if a friend of mine makes fun of one of my songs, I'll drop it from the album, you know? And that's the enemy. Yes. Self-consciousness is the enemy. And I suppose just keep on growing musically and keep on having fun. And as much as possible, enjoy the process. Because the biggest enemy I've ever had to my art is getting to a point where I'm worried. This happened to me very bigly, big, very bigly, that's <laughs> very big time in comedy, is that I got to a point where I was like, look at that poster. Look who's on that poster. I should be on that poster. You know what I mean? That yeah. sort of sense of like status anxiety. And last year I was doing this show, but this year I'm only doing that show. What's happened to my career? You know, that sort of stuff is really the enemy. If you can just have fun throughout... And I, I seriously think that some of my greatest influences artistically are people who really couldn't care less what their response is to their latest thing. They're just doing it. And I think as much as you can do that, you, you'll be in a good place. Oh, I love that. I love that. I think that's really, really great advice that I think I'm going to adopt myself. Yeah. You've shut down all your old social media accounts. Yeah. If someone wanted to hear what you were doing, do you have... Anyways, I suppose for my music, I need a name for it and I need to start a social media page for it. Yeah. I don't know what I'm going to do, but I might start an OnlyFans because I'm hearing good things about that platform. It's well known for porn, but it's not <laughs> only porn. So, it's this, so, so do you know what it is? It's that no, it started out it. as like, you know, you build a small community of fans around your stuff. But the main stuff that it was was like webcam porn and stuff like that. And it was a way of people who work in the sex industry to kind of take some of the power back because you have a lot of control over who sees your stuff as opposed to if you in porn and you put your stuff out there the next thing it's on a million other sites and totally. it, you know it's, it's out of control so it's for people who are in that world but wanted a more controlled but it's now musicians on there it's everyone on there all kinds of artists so it's basically like where you build look it up only fans it's where you build like a very specifically your community you know what i mean um, i'm definitely gonna look it up 
but yeah, I need to, you know, I'd certainly start from scratch in terms of a name and a social media and stuff like that. But in terms of like, if you're listening to this podcast, my name is Daniel Friedman and you can find me on Facebook and you, you can make friends with me. I deleted a lot of my old friends, so I've got space. <laughs> so, and then, then that way you'll find out if, if I do something with my life. <laughs> He's definitely going to do something. And if you don't find him, you can follow me because whatever Daniel does, <laughs> I will share because I, I am part of his… you are now my PR agent. No, I mean, I'm part of your cult following. <laughs> okay, cool. Thank you. I'm part of yours as well. <laughs> <laughs> it's very incestuous. <laughs> oh, Daniel, thank you so much for coming. Thanks for having me. If you are an indie artist whose passion for what you do can inspire or fuel others, get in touch. I'd love to chat. You can find me on Instagram at Shotgun Toy. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts. And we're tired and we're not very trusting We lie down or fall down and crumble to dust In the light that is dark, it's letting the dusk in Taking the innocent victims of lust in Faking an answer, forgetting the question Sitting and resting with indigestion Shame, we all so lame inside With insane voices twisted, enlisted to bring on the rain Bright sun in the day, clouds on my brain.
call me insane But after the rain comes song After the sun comes rain again So bring on the rain On the rain, on the rain On the rain, on the rain Bring on the rain, on the rain, on the rain, on the rain Cause I don't mind if the sun don't shine Don't shine. But I don't mind if the sun don't.